Nice little signature tune, Mr. Shapiro. We'll, we'll start. We need to start these things professionally, you know, on time and uh, signature tunes. But anyway, I'm not going to say why we aren't exactly on time. <laughs> but, uh, lovely to have you, David, as always. Uh, you you still say, keeping safe, I see? I am. I am. I heard you on the synthesizer. And uh, I, saw, I saw over the weekend, uh, I saw a wonderful movie on David Foster who's a producer of records that you'll know from Chicago to Barbara Streisand to all those, a wonderful story about about him as a producer. But uh, very good on keyboard and synthesizer. And why I say that, he produced a whole album for uh, Barbara Streisand just using synthesized music. That's what she wanted. <laughs> so, yeah. But it yeah. really worthwhile. Mm. Yeah, it's thank you. documentary. Yeah. Mm. One to put onto our, our list. Mm. Oh, is it a worthwhile stock market at the moment, Mr. Shapiro? Crazy. Absolutely crazy. But I can live with crazy sometimes. Um, I'm not going to put it out of its uh, – I'm not going to try to talk it down. But today the, um, the move is coming from China. I haven't heard a convincing uh, explanation why it is as strong as it has. But it's, it's, it's gone through to the rest of the world as well. So we've got a very strong Europe. Uh, we're going to have another strong session in the U.S. Uh, and it comes at a time where there's so much political speech about or sp- political rhetoric about the U.S. Um, election. COVID there is increasing at a rapid rate. In fact, globally it is. And we're still struggling to understand how long it's going to take for the global economy to unlock, you know, how long it's going to take us to get back to normal. But markets seem to have brushed aside and uh, I think driven by liquidity. Uh, you know, people coming into the, you know, keep people buying equities. Listen, Alec, we heard it 08, 09. We heard the liquidity story, you know, and it continued for 10 years. So I'm, I'm hoping this continues for another decade because I haven't got that many decades left, you know, so I want to end up on a high. <laughs> I saw you talking about your dad, Archie, Mr. Mm, Gold. Mm, mm. Wasn't that lovely, David, that you could, you could give him a, uh, well, a, not a belated, but uh, just to uh, remember him in that way. Well, he would have loved he would have loved this market because uh, when I joined in seventy, I mean, gold gold shares were the only thing that we really dealt with in America uh, on the JSC. Uh, we dealt with America, Paris, you name it, and uh, it was a vibrant market in all our mining shares. And my dad used to walk around. He was a great gold bull, and he would walk around the floor with his big button, you know, buy gold. And uh, he went through lots of ups and downs, but he went through the greatest part of the South African gold market. You know, when production was up at a thousand tons, which I think was the peak, uh, we're down to a hundred tons now. But he would have loved this market, you know, and he never gave up his gold shares. And he was a great, he, you know, De Beers was his, his love. He dealt in more De Beers than anybody else did. But uh, when I saw where we are now, closer to 1800, then I just thought of him. He, when he died, gold was 275. I think the peak that we got to in his life might have been at 87. I think they reached about 800 at one stage. I can't remember, but it was uh, brief. 19. It was my mm. first month as a as a journalist, David, uh, in the mm. Citizen. Can you imagine my first month as a journalist, mm. as a financial journalist, little trainee from KZN, very very mm. wet behind the ears, never been to Joburg before, <laughs> uh, and to this big sitting in a uh, an office at the Citizen where we had Reuters tickets mm. and it was all the time it was going crazy because mm. South African gold shares were going higher and Clive mm. Roffey who's still around today uh, yeah. used to predict gold fix to the dollar <laughs> but he, never, he didn't always get it right but he would he would say tomorrow according to the charts the gold fix is going to be four hundred and fifty seven dollars and fifty cents eventually it peaked out at eight fifty. Uh, yeah. And that was, uh, I just recall it because it was my first, wo- year, first month at work. Uh, but mm-hmm. just going back 
to what you said earlier about the crazy markets. Are are we going through or are we living through a period where Mr. Market has just gone dilly or the stock market is telling us what lies ahead? I, I hope it's a letter. There are times, there are places where Mr. Market has gone dilly, you know, such as Tesla, and there are a lot of smaller businesses that are being pushed through the roof. Um, I, I'm not going to argue about Tesla. I can't. You know, I mean, uh, every time we try to talk it down, it just keeps going higher and he's got his followers. But I think, I think to an extent, um, what I like to think is that the economy that we come out of is not going to be the same as the economy we went into. And I think all that's happened during this period is we've accelerated or transitioned a lot faster into this data economy. Um, for example, um, over the weekend, Disney released um, Hamilton, which is a very popular musical in, in the U.S. I mean, you pay literally thousands of dollars for a ticket there. And, uh, it's it's uh, even in, certainly in London, it's impossible to get it, to, to have gotten tickets unless you knew someone who knew somebody. So they filmed a stage show um, in 2016, which they've now put on to Disney Plus into the stream. And the amount of viewers, you know, over the weekend was staggered. And it, it, all it does is point to how things have changed, you know, and, and what they, yes, they, they sell a subscription at $8. There was, this came part of your subscription. But this is, this is uh, what we're going through at the moment. And I think more and more people, um, are migrating to this economy and changing the way that, uh, you know, that we live. So I think things are happening there that I think are going to, uh, that's Tesla, your, your chart on Tesla. It's just crazy. So, so I'm, I'm hooked into that. You know, I'm, uh, I'm very much hooked into where this economy is going to be three, four, five years and the shape that it's going to take, you know, and I think along the line, um, I'm still, I still believe that, uh, in, in the medical area as well, a lot more money is going to be spent. No one wants to be caught in the kind of trap that we found ourselves now. But Tesla is a, is a different story. I, I need someone to explain that, you know, 320 PE, but he's got his followers, you know, and, and whether they're buying his battery technology, whether they're buying the fact that he's well ahead of the rest of the pack and it's going to take a long time for people to catch him in that. Uh, you know, if you go into small, if you go into European cities, if you go into Hong Kong, you go into not necessarily New York, um, Sydney, I've seen many, many Teslas. It's a status symbol and people love it. But can you justify these prices? I'm not going to even attempt to discuss it. David, have a look at that. I've got Tesla mm. on the screen with the blue graph, which mm. is Toyota Motors. Mm. <laughs> and, and the art performance over the past year, has been 418%. Yeah. Okay, let's take it a little bit further. Say, take it over three years. Yeah. The outperformance there, 234%. It's just as though Tesla is the stock to buy. Toyota, which is now surpassed as in market yeah. cap, uses more, many, many more vehicles, uh, is not in fashion anymore. So I suppose what we do have here is Mr. Market very excited about Tesla. Yeah. The question really is, is this sustainable? I obviously not. <laughs> you know, that we know, but as Mr. Keynes used to say, you know, the market's irrational, but it stays irrational longer than you stay solvent. You know, and so I wouldn't bet against it. You know, that's a problem. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't go short of it. Although the amount of shorts in Tesla must be astronomical. In other words, it must be you know thousands of people that have taken or a huge amount of money that's gone short on Tesla, expecting it to fall. And, uh, you know, eventually they'll be right. It's going to, somewhere down the line, um, it, it, it will flatten out and start to fall. But we don't know when that's going to happen. Uh, I see you've got Disney up there as well. Mm. I like hurt. Disney. Yeah, I was just wondering. I, not, you know, it's been hurt because they've closed down the theme parks. There's a lot more arms to Disney and of course ESPN which is the sporting channel has also suffered as a as a result because they're not playing any kind of sport in America so from that point of view they hurt but on the streaming side I think this is where we're backing them against uh, Netflix I think they're a cheaper entry and they've got content the one thing Disney has got it's got uh, decades and decades of uh, of movies 
that appeal to families, you know. And if you've got a young kid stuck in lockdown, you better get the Disney Channel, you know, because I'm not sure they're going to warm to Netflix or to Hulu or to any of the others. I think this is the uh, this is the one. Spotify, great, yeah. Is that yours? Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of that one because it was mm-hmm. around about uh, this level here in March mm-hmm. that we bought it into our portfolio on the mm-hmm. strength of the more aggressive move into podcasting, mm-hmm. which is something we're doing ourselves after, mm-hmm. I think, having done our homework. Mm-hmm. But look at that, David, 135 mm-hmm. In fact, I put it in the portfolio at $126. There we ah. go. If you ah. were lucky, you would have even got it at, at even less, 117 mm-hmm. But look at it today. It's sitting at uh, 71. I, you know, credit to you because um, a couple of months ago, I would have, or even a year ago, I'd have said Apple Music, YouTube Music, um, Amazon Music, you know, all kinds of music stations coming on there, all offering the same kind of, you know, all say the same kind of hits, etc. And yet uh, they've just had an edge, and it could be the podcast. It's just that they seem to have captured the attention of of music lovers. And I must admit that I've got all of them. I've got YouTube, you know, <laughs> I pay, I'm a, I'm a subscription junkie, you know, I just pay subscriptions. And, uh, the one I love the most is Spotify, you know, and I'm able to put all my own music on it as well, you know. So I've got modern stuff, I've got the 60s stuff as well. So when I've got Linda in the car, it's always 60s because, you know, she enjoys that stuff. Every time it's, it's explicit type stuff that you listen today, you know, I have to turn it off. So. Uh, but Spotify have done brilliantly, and you're right, you know, going into podcasts, uh, a master move. Daniel Ek, uh, the, the founder and CEO of Spotify, who mm. is not yet 40, and uh, Scott Hastings, the mm. uh, founder and CEO of Netflix, have got a similar philosophy. Mm. And they say that their competitor is not Apple Music or uh, mm. Disney or any of the others who are entering into the steam, streaming field. Yeah. Competitors are the linear operations, the the networks in other words. And if you look at Netflix as well, it's done it's done great, but it hasn't no. certainly it's not a Spotify, but it had it had already been uh, no. identified a time ago. And I like that philosophy, David, that it's uh, when you look at yeah. the stream only about ten percent of mm. the full package. So there's a long way to go if mm. you buy that view. Yeah, look, this is, um, I've also missed it. I think, I think COVID or lockdown has helped Netflix <laughs> more than anything else because they were starting to lose momentum. There was concerns about whether they could keep their subscription base going on that. And, uh, along comes lockdown and has just put them through the roof. Where, where their problem is that they've got to get, they've got to get, uh, content. You know, they probably release their arsenal now and they've got to make sure that they can keep it up. So they're probably releasing stuff now that they would have released uh, some time ago. But uh, I don't think people are going to go back on it. And and I still think that globally they've got, um, you know, uh, they're going to continue uh, upwards. The one thing that they, they say, you know, when you – the one thing that, that, that bothers uh, Hastings and, and bothers Netflix is more the gaming side. I think that's more of a challenge. And my gaming players, Tencent, I, I'd rather go for the base, the platform where they use, um, you know, the, the platform where they actually play games than rather the producers. In other words, the Netflix, Tencent is a Netflix because this is where kids, certainly in China, are going to, to, to play their games. So, um, that's probably their, uh, their, their biggest conf- you know, competitor. But, um, you know, listen, it's exciting areas. Aren't they just? And you see on screen Duncan Artis, I the see. new investment, sorry, he's chief investment officer designate because he only takes over in September. Duncan, uh, before Has he you. Got a book marquee there. Is this, is he growing uh, something there? I, I like your glasses. <laughs> I really like your glasses. And you're um, I'll put that one as well. <laughs> it looks like we're, uh, we're, we're twins in our class. Good, good, good style that you have there, Mr. Artis. That part of the of the of the new promotion, new image. Oh, sorry, I got to I got to unmute you. My apologies. Okay, you should be back now. Uh-uh. Duncan, I lost you. Yes. Uh, just can you hear me now? Here we go. Got you now. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, the glasses, I was the last person to get glasses. And I think lasting till into my 40s to get my first glasses is not too bad. But it takes a while getting used to, yeah? <laughs> okay, well, uh, I'll take mine off because I'm what they call short-sighted. So uh, I can see you pretty good now, but don't put me in a, in a motor vehicle. Dave, before we, we ask Duncan about various bits and pieces on his, his new role, have you got anything to pose, a question to pose to him now that he's going to be the... Uh, the, the guy who looks after these gazillions that are entrusted to Alan Gray. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I'd like to share because I'm a great Alan Gray follower. I mean, I get all their documents, etc., and they're true to uh, to where they've always been, and they've always had a very specific style of investing. And uh, you're going to ask Duncan, as CIO, if he's going to dive, you know, move off this path, or whether he's still going to remain loyal to the way that they have always managed portfolios, especially in the kind of environment that we find ourselves now. Sure, David, thanks. We're getting a bit of feedback, probably from from David Duncan, so I'm just going to mute him quickly if you don't mind. Um, Yeah, good question, though. Are you still going to remain as the adherent to value investing? Yes, so, you know, we've been doing the same thing for almost 46 years, 47 years, and... I think, you know, most asset managers that are independent of a life company or investment bank don't last that long, right? Because asset management is just a business of people. Some people move. Some people start fighting. You have periods of underperformance. And outperforming the, the benchmark is, is hard over long periods of, of time. So, you know, what's worked for 45 years, would you want to change it? No. But we're always making incremental changes. And, and I think if you look in South Africa, I would say now each incremental unit of alpha, and what I mean, each little bit you outperform is more valuable than it was when I started. I think we, there are a lot more good competitors and the South African equity market's a lot more, um, it's got a lot more sort of, as I say, competitive over time. So every little incremental improvement you can make to your process, um, a good example for us is fixed income. I mean, people think of us as equity and balance managers, but our, our best performance over the last year has actually come from our fixed interest portion of the portfolio. And, and we've spent a lot of time improving the process. So it's all, it's all about improving processes. Um, you know, I, I listened to you and David's conversation, and you, you're speaking about the same shares that everyone else does, which, which I find very, very interesting at the moment, particularly from an August point of view. Hmm. Uh, there's been quite a lot of criticism of, of Alan Gray in the last little while, not just from Magnus Haystack, but from others as well. I've has never that, heard of it. Uh, relative performance. Has that, um, did that impact the change there? No, no. So, I mean, Andrew's been at Alan Gray for 20 years, same length I have, and, you know, he's looking to do something different. We, as a CIO, you have a one-year notice period. So I, I've known about Andrew for, for a long time. Um, and then what happens is the CIO recommends a successor to our remuneration committee, the chairman of which is Ian Little, um, my former boss as well. Um, and so that's a very structured process. It's just how do you announce these things? Because we were going to announce it in March, uh, but then the virus came. We thought, well, and is only leaving in September, so, so why do it now? And, and, you know, the performance has really been dragged down really by, I'd say, the last 15 or so months. I mean, if you look, 2017, 16, 15, 14, 13, you know, we had, we had Alpha in every single one of those years. So it's really just last year and, and this year that, that's been tough. And that obviously can drag down the longer-term numbers. If you think at the moment a good return could be five and a bad return three. And, you know, the difference between the two is very small. Um, and then the other big part of it has been Orbis. So... I mean, as I mentioned, the, the shares you and David have been speaking about, they're very, very underweight the U.S. They're very, very underweight disruptors. And I think you would know the dis- sort of disparity between value and, let's call it growth, is about three standard deviations or something. So, you know, we, we actually think the best part of the performance um, is actually probably going to come from the offshore for the portfolio if, if any mean reversion happens. But... Uh- are, is it a mean reversion when you've got exponential company? Companies growing at the at the rate that yes. sure. industrial. Sure. I mean, I mean, let's think of Microsoft. It's a trillion dollar company. Let's say you want a twenty percent return. You have to add two hundred billion dollars of, of value. So they have to find a new profit stream on a twenty multiple. It makes them ten billion uh, profit. And if you start looking through Amazon and Apple, just to make a difference to the valuation. They have to take over entire new industries just to make up for some kind of growth because in reality, Facebook and Google are advertising companies. Advertising is cyclical. At some stage, 
uh, digital advertising reaches a certain level where it doesn't take any more market share. And then what are they, right? And I bet you if they're that big then, whoever is U.S. president or, or is ever head of the U.S. ain't going to allow U.S. companies to rule the world. So typically these companies have always been taken down by regulation. Are they fantastic businesses? Yes, they are. Do I think everybody owns them? Yes, they do. And do I think they're on big, absolute valuations? Uh, I mean, is Amazon going to be a $2 trillion company, a $3 trillion company? Whereas if I'm looking like something like Nedbank in South Africa, I'm just going to use it as an example. No one wants to own an EM financial stock. I think Nedbank's worth 100% more than its current share price. Does it get there in a straight line? I, I have no idea. So I just think that everyone's kind of positioned the same way. Duncan, I've got a, a, a table on or a graph on the table here. I'm sorry, it didn't, sure. didn't work out as well as I thought it was. That's fine. But on the left-hand side, it talks to your main holdings in the portfolio. Yes. Given what you told us a little earlier, is it likely that uh, these aren't going to change too much when you take over in September? Yes, I think it's very important for everyone to, to remember that, I mean, there are four managers who, who manage the, the balance fund. Andrew, myself, Ron and Jacques. It's only Andrew who's changing. So, and then we are point, we promoting Tim, Aka, and, and Rory. Tim's been at Allen Gray for seven years and Rory 12, so very experienced sort of people. Um, so remember that the chief investment officer at Allen Gray doesn't tell everyone what to do, right? But you do need someone who's ultimately responsible that, that the board and I guess clients can look to. I'll be managing a slightly bigger slice of the money than I, than I used to. But the vast majority of the fund is still going to be managed by the same people who've managed it the last five years. And remember, we've done this transition over a number of times. I, Simon Murray was CIO when I joined, was passed over to Stephen, and then Ian, and then Andrew, and now to myself. So we, we don't have individual people who run funds. It's, it's sort of a, a multi, sort of internal multi-manager approach. That's extraordinary. So in all that time, 20 years, there have only been four of you as the chief investment officer. Yes, well, five now with me, and then... And then it's even more remarkable if you think about the impact Simon made. He was only chief investment officer for three years. <laughs> it doesn't feel like that when you, when you think back. Uh, but remember, Simon moved to, to London to go and help with, with Orbis. So, yeah, so it's something, uh, as a, a client, we've always had a lot of client meetings the last day, and one of the more people I respected, you know, he never expects anyone bad to be promoted at Allen Gray. And that's because we've got this very, very thorough process, difficult process that people need to get through before they can get to a level where we promote them as, as portfolio managers. So we've actually managed transitions like this pretty well in the past. Um, and at least we can point back, as you said, to history and say, you know, yes, some good people have left, but then there's always been someone else who's taken over who's been good at, across the whole team. And that should give clients a, a lot of confidence. How are you growing your timber? How are you growing the next Simon Marais? Um, so uh, it's the same sort of process we've used. So what we've typically had is, you know, we've got the portfolio managers at the top. In fact, this is probably the, the most experienced people we've ever promoted in, in the firm. So people start at the bottom as an analyst. I mean, you expect it to cover many different sectors. We, we don't believe in having sector specialists. Um, you know, you write reports. And then, you know, as you get sort of advanced in the team, you know, there's more um, expected of you. And then analysts get to manage something we call an ARL, which is a paper portfolio. So their main job is still to be an analyst. They're given a very real-life 10 billion rand portfolio that trades off the prices and, and the volumes. And, you know, we have a long track record for people who are going to promote about how they manage money in that, on that paper portfolio. And also there's, of course, a qualitative thing to it. How did the analyst handle telling Investec CEO they're way overpaid? Or how, you know, how did we deal in situations? And, you know, we've got a long track record of reports, what shares they recommended. And, of course, you know, managing money, as I'm sure David knows, is, is a lot about EQ as well, right? If it was just up to clever people, everyone who ran money would be a Harvard professor, right? Actually, there are lots of good people who who've made money who are not necessarily the best people at numbers. A lot of it is managing emotions and, you know, when you go through underperformance, like how do you react to it? And so, so we take all those things into account. How do you manage uh, your emotions? Because given, given what we've learned from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, you don't have to be a rocket science, which, which aligns with what you said a minute ago, but you, you have to be able to keep your emotions in check. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you think long-term capital management was run only by, <laughs> by, by all the guys who won all the awards for derivatives. Um, yes, Alec, it's a, I think the most important thing I can say is we always say if you took an average investment team and you put them in the Allen Gray structure, they produce above average results. So it's actually not me. It's, it's the structure and 
you know, what is your ownership structure? Does it allow you to make a, make, take a long-term view? How are the incentives of the portfolio managers linked to the outcome of the clients? Do they just get big bonuses, even if performance um, is bad? And, you know, I've lived through a lot of cycles. Um, I see you've got a bookcase behind you there. Mine are mainly on my Kindle now, but I, I've tried to read just about every great investment book there's, there's ever been. And that's the amazing thing about investments. Great managers are willing to share, you know, what their thoughts were. So it's kind of the structure and the process is there. And then obviously some individuals act slightly differently each time, but, you know, that's up to each sort of individual in my point of view. But it's the structure and the process and the ownership that they, that to me is far more important than having smart and hardworking people. How did you handle Cecil? I remember we've spoken about this in the past. The sure. share price jumped all the way down to 20, 21 rands. Yeah. You guys were big shareholders. Then you were, you were selling. Uh, did you yeah. get back in at 21 rands? No, we didn't get back in at 21. Like we, we bought a little bit, but I think, you know, when you look at Sassel, there, there are two things to think about. One is, you know, we, when they had the second cost overrun, we reduced its risk weighting. What do we mean by that? We couldn't buy it more than a certain level in the portfolio because you realize, well, if you have another billion dollar overrun and you times it by 15, it starts to become big numbers in rands. Um, and of course, you know, you're relying on chemical prices and, and oil prices to balance in the short term, which, which which you just don't know, right, even though they have. Um, and then you also have to think it from another point of view. It's not clear yet. The chances are obviously getting less where the oil price and chemical prices are, but there was a chance Sassel needs a rights issue. And if it was a distressed rights issue, it wasn't going to be a small amount of money. So if you had one rand in Sassel, you didn't really have one rand. You had one rand plus the extra money you had to put in. So we were thinking when you think of position size, if Sassel was going to have a rights issue, how much do we want to own now? And then, you know, what, where would it be? Um, if we have to put more money in. And, you know, it's a strange world. I mean, if oil goes back to 80 and chemical sassel could be back over 300 rand. So it is pretty remarkable. Even though it's gone up six times from the bottom, you know, you still sit with the same sort of problem that if the oil price and chemical prices collapse again, you know, in the short term, you do have this 190 billion rand of, of debt. Um, but they have said, or there have been news stories, that people are looking at buying a stake in Lake Charles. You know, if they can sell a stake for two, three billion dollars, you know, that's sort of 45, 50 billion dollars of debt you can repay. And then the company starts to, to look a bit different. Um, so we just apologize to everyone out there. If I think in the last 10 years, you hopefully don't have shares like this every, more than once every, once every 10 years. David, uh, when we spoke a couple of weeks ago uh, about Sassel, you made the point that it was a day trader's delight. Um, and, and that made a, uh, it, it certainly moved me enough to get it out of our portfolio. Uh, I see the share price has been whipsawing a little bit around these levels. Uh, would you be recommending to Duncan that he, he piles back into Sassel now? Not at all. No, not at all. When we said it was a day trader, it was U.S. day traders. They suddenly uh, got the uh, cheese of peak, I don't know what it was, moved and decided that this is where they're going to throw their daily money. And, uh, I mean, it just became crazy. I'm on, I'm on Duncan. You know, from my point of view, there are too many issues there that we have to negotiate to make it an attractive buy, which we can't negotiate. One is the oil price, chemical prices as well. And, and also one has to look at management, how this whole thing has been management, managed, you know, the cost overruns and so on. So I, I, I don't want to look for trouble. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm in a different camp, uh, whether it's value or not value. I just, to me, there's too much, there's too many things around Sassel to make it attractive. And I'm, you know, the, the, the difference between <laughs> Duncan is that I have to look at my clients in the eye. I don't do it through a third party. You know, they sit at me around the table and if I lose their pension, <laughs> it's, it's hell. <laughs> so you've got to be a lot more careful and, uh, you know, when, when, when you put people into things. Although, although David, I, I must Duncan. say, um, the safest share yeah. in 2000 was Dimension Data. Yeah, a good point indeed. Uh, looking people in the eye. Uh, do you look at them in the eye at all, Duncan? Do you have to sit with, surely you, you would have certain people that you, you have to yeah. please explain sure. to? I think I did 65 client presentations last year. We go from the biggest pension funds in South Africa to webinars with 1,700 people. Now, trust me, we look the clients straight in the, the eye, and people have a very high expectation of us. You know, so sometimes when you do well, it's because of Alan Gray. When you do bad, it's because it's Duncan. 
you know, <laughs> so you, you know, we need to manage those those sort of processes. Well, congratulations on your appointment, even though you knew about it almost a year ago. Uh, it's nice to to uh, to be able to talk to you again, Duncan, and look forward to picking up with Alan Gray in the future. Before we 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 log off though, or uh, we say goodbye to you. How big is Alan Gray now? How many? What kind of asset base are you? Looking after? So, so it depends which week you pick at the moment, but it's around about five hundred. Five hundred billion rands. Yes. Yeah, that's right. But remember, a fair chunk of that is managed by Orbis. Yeah. Duncan Artis, the Chief Investment Officer designate from Alan Gray. Lovely to see you again and to, to have you on Rational Radio. Uh, well, we're moving across now to uh, a, a different subject, a completely different subject, and it's a warm welcome to Nick Hudson. He is the uh, he's an actuary. Uh, he's also uh, the coordinator of Panda, and Panda has been in the news for quite some time now uh, because of the, uh, the the well the approach that it's taken towards modelling. Last month, it was around about a month ago, Nick, that we spoke. The mm. podcast that we did then was our top listened to podcast. Uh, on and I can tell you that takes some doing, given the number of podcasts we produce at Biz News nowadays for the whole month, with uh, literally tens of thousands of people downloading and listening to it. So there's a lot of interest in what you had to say then. But you also said at that stage that you believed that we were going to peak probably in that month. Uh, and when we look at what's happening in COVID-19 at the moment, it certainly doesn't look like a peak from all of the other data that, that we're getting in. But I know you're going to tell me um, uh, the real story. So, so provide us with a little bit of an update, if you would. Well, yeah, good afternoon, Alec. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, did, we were surprised to see that it was such a, a well-viewed podcast. Uh, just pity that it wasn't being listened to by the right people. Um, the peak I, think they listen. I think they listened, but they did, might not have heard. <laughs> they might not have heard. The, the peak has been hit in the Western Cape. You know, I said to you on that show we would see a peak at the end of June, early July. Um, and... We are uh, a bit gobsmacked here as to what's gone on in the last week. So if you just go back to the beginning of that month, we said, these are the things that Panda's been saying. We said, guys, be careful. These lockdowns are going to be deadly. Okay. If this is, you can't go lives versus money. There's no such thing. When you plunge people into poverty and turn the revenues off of businesses, that has a big impact. Lockdown itself will be deadly. That was the first thing we came out saying very loudly. The second thing we said was that the virus curves that people were projecting, these things that had deaths up to 351,000, uh, peaks all the way out to November, didn't look like anything we were seeing in the rest of the world. Okay, The models that were being used by uh, the NICD and all the national modeling teams were showing these peaks out many months ahead, you know, Western Cape months ahead. Okay, And we said that's wrong. Um, you can see from what's going on elsewhere. So it was two big things, the amount of deaths being massively overestimated and the entire shape of the epidemic curve being being mis, uh, misestimated. And so last week when the Western Cape clearly peaked, you know, now it's very clear, we said, okay, maybe somebody will start listening. And we logged on to a, a, a podcast with the Western Cape modeling branch of the NRCD and couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. They showed a graph with this little peak happening and said, oh, what does this mean? And so on and so forth. They must be missing deaths. And they go to the, um, the mortality curve for, you know, the, the, the all causes mortality curve for the country. And they say, look, there's an increase in mortality. So here we are sitting all saying, well, that's not surprising. You know, there are things other than coronavirus that kill people. And this, Lockdown is one of them. So we're not surprised to see that. We're not surprised to see this peak. And yet the guys are saying longer. How did they say it? No, what? No, we're still going to have lots of deaths in the Western Cape from coronavirus. The, the peak's just going to be longer, further, flatter. That was the term they used. And oh, look, we, we can't possibly be counting all of the coronavirus deaths. I mean, it's astonishing. 
How has locked how has the lockdown killed people? Okay, I get asked this question by people. You know, no, poverty doesn't kill people. You know, poverty doesn't kill people. In fact, I've got this study from the Great Depression that says that mortality actually went down in the Great Depression in the 1930s. You know, never mind the missing wars and so on. Okay, take an income away from yourself or from a friend, and I don't, I don't know if you have kids or whatever. In a position where they can no longer afford to send their kids to school, they don't know where the income's going to come from. And for most of that, for most of the people in our country, that kind of position is a very dangerous position. We haven't got big social safety nets, and poverty's not far away for a huge range of people in this country. And we have destroyed jobs by the million in this lockdown. So many, many people have been plunged into this position. You get the death of despair. You get malnutrition. These are the things that are very real and, and which will be faced. They, they lag. They won't, they're not things that we're going to show up in March when the lockdown is implemented. But these things are real and they will be seen. And the degree of institutional destruction and loss of jobs has only just begun to become evidenced. Com- companies held on as long as they could. Small, small businesses, proprietors held on for as long as they could, of course. That's what people do. They struggle to survive but they can't keep going forever, and they're still falling like flies. There is a wall of institutional destruction coming still, especially in the small businesses and your proprietors and entrepreneurs. That's coming. But at a time when all we see are infections going up and all we see is the – and I'll actually pull on, uh, put onto the, onto the screen now a, uh, the, the latest – uh, data, not from, oopsie, let me try that again. Um, this is from some of the, there we go, from uh, part of the, the in, international uh, coordination. There you can see the, the latest death yesterday of 173 nationwide were the highest by far. Now we're sitting at, what, more than 3,000 deaths. And as this news goes through into, permeates into society, you get more and more concerns. There's this fantastic uh, table or, or, or feature that the Financial Times of London offers, mm-hmm. FD.com. Yeah. And there you can see South Africa's debts. I remember last time we spoke, you said, don't, don't focus on infection. So I'm not. But even yes. when you look at you can see that this, is, this curve is going in the wrong direction. And when you get people fearful, uh, they clearly would be staying at home more, perhaps not, even if you opened the economy 100%. It's unlikely that they would all want to go back to work as they did before March. So two things about that chart. The first one, that number you showed, we, we need to um, just point out that that reflected three days' worth of deaths for Gauteng. They didn't report on Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> Seriously? They didn't? <laughs> Seriously. Wow. Okay. Oh, but there I suppose you have, yeah, you have a look down there. So there was zero yeah. deaths in Gauteng for the two days. So this graph yes, is right. relevant, yeah. basically. Okay, got yes. it. Yes. Okay, so, and you've always got to watch out for that. I, I, was, I was caught out once. I, I called a peak in one of the countries too early because I got caught out by the weekend effect. That's a, that's a pretty unusual one to have zero days for two days. So there must have been something wrong with the systems, fair enough. Okay. But yeah, and, and again, you know, it's just another example of how easy it is to make when people are jumpy and scared. Uh, you know, it's just so easy for an overreaction. Whoa, 173 deaths, everything's going out of control. But that chart that you're looking at right now, is very important, and you are looking at exactly the right one. You're looking at the new deaths per day on a long basis, so we're testing whether there's an exponential process going on. And what that chart will tell a statistician is that there isn't an exponentiating process. As that curve flattens out, as you can see it doing, um, you, you, that you're approaching a peak. And that's precisely what these models we've been saying since I went on the Modeling Symposium podcast on the 21st of May that these things do not exponentiate for months and months and months like the modelers in South Africa are projecting. It simply doesn't happen anywhere. You can see in all those curves that it just takes there where you've got it. Just, you know, the thing uh, you can probably call that exponentiating for a month and a bit, and then it starts flattening out. And the reasons for that, the, the models, the model structures are wrong. They're assuming susceptibility numbers that are just way too big. And you also just have to think about where we've been taken here. We've been taken in South Africa to the level of approximately 
I think it's 54 deaths per million at the moment. Okay. That's, you know, as, as we never tire of saying, uh, every single death is a tragedy for somebody. But 54 per million is far from being an important cause of death in this country. Far. And contrasts with Belgium, the countries that we are being asked to compare ourselves to, which have around 850 deaths per million. Are we you know, not it, likely it's a, are we given sorry. that the deaths are rising? Um, are we not likely to get well? Certainly not Belgian, one hopes, but uh, much yeah, higher than fifty. Yeah, definitely increase from fifty. There's no question. But but this is an important thing to understand. It's been lost in the noise with all the. Well, I mean, let's just be blunt. With all the panic, okay, and the inability to confront problems rationally, what's been lost in the noise is the following. Just very clear reality about this epidemic. In Western Europe and North America, this epidemic has featured, okay, with an average death per million of around 300, okay? In South America, it's featured with an average death per million somewhat below that. In the rest of the world, there's been very little. Asia, there's, it's negligible. You know what the story is in Australia and New Zealand? Negligible. Africa, negligible. Eastern Europe, negligible. Russia, negligible. It's been, there have been two completely different stories. I mean, not talking about, you know, that, that Western Europe and North America have peaked and nobody else has. There are more than 100 countries in the world that have peaked. So we get a very clear picture of what's going on. Brazil has peaked, for example. And there, you heard this, the exact same thing. We've been talking to colleagues in Brazil. And they say, ah, we're facing the same problem. We've got these models who are telling us that we're going to have 1,500 deaths per million people. Okay. And guess what? They've, they've, they've peaked. They're in the decline now for a couple of weeks, and they're at 300. So it's the same story, you know, even though Brazil is probably, you know, amongst the developing nations in the world, one of the worst. Or if not, yeah, I think it's probably the, in the top two or three. It's still at uh, a third of the level of the worst in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to pull that up, and it won't uh, – um, uh, it, sorry, Nick, I, it, it'll take me a, a minute to actually get to the, the right graph. But um, if you then look at South Africa, everything that you've said to us now, are you mm. still extrapolating from this 3,200-odd uh, deaths that we have in South Africa that we'll get to – Significantly higher than that. I think. I think the the official number we last saw was forty thousand. Uh, would you yeah, see us getting? Yeah, there's a very worrying thing at that bottling symposium to what five different teams all come up with the number within ten percent of each other. I mean, so much for independence. We thought that was nonsense. Then we said there's no good reason to expect more than ten thousand deaths. We still have that. We haven't changed our estimates, Alec. We've said the same thing for a long time. A peak that's much earlier than what they're projecting. And none of the second, third, fourth, fifth wave story, you know, it doesn't make sense in the context of you won't be able to detect it, a second wave in South Africa, if we come out at like 150 deaths per million or something like that, you know. Um, and uh, no, I mean, we've said the same thing. Lockdown's going to be longer and harder and more deadly. The curves are wrong. Our mortality is not going to be as high. We're going to peak earlier and... We must watch out. This is not a business cycle. This is institutional destruction. And the longer it continues, the deeper it gets. Mm. In the uh, president's uh, note that he sent out this morning, he did mention that this is a strong uh, supportive idea for a national health insurance service. So given the destruction, as you say, has gone on to the economy, there's there's a very uh, – firm undertone here of saying, well, we've had a pandemic, so now we need to prepare ourselves better next time. Let's bring in NHI. I'll find that email in a moment, but what's your thought on that? I wasn't aware that he'd uh, made that announcement, but clearly that intent has been lurking in the background. Um, look, first of all, I think it's wishful thinking. What One of the things that this crisis and the way it's been handled will do is it will incapacitate the state. And that's a state which was already operating with low levels, both of financial and administrative capacity. So there's no question that state will be um, significantly incapacitated here. So it's just from that perspective alone, it's not plausible. 
Okay. The second thing is the only thing that will dig this country out of uh, the the hole that it's dug for itself, and that's what we've done, um, is to free up private business. Innovation and growth only ever happens if there's a free uh, private sector that is unfettered by administration and bureaucracy. It's the only thing that works. And as we put the brakes on the private sector in this country over the last 20 years, growth has fallen. We've had zero per capita GDP growth for 10 years, Alec, something like that, more, 15 maybe. We're going to have to liberalize this economy if you want it to grow. We need capital to form again. We need a lot of capital formation to rebuild all the institutions that have been destroyed. And it's going to take years. It's not an overnight story. Let me read you. I have, I have highlighted. I don't know if you can actually see it clearly enough on your screen, but I'll just read it to you. Um, this is the, the, the president's message from this morning, which he sends out every Monday uh, from the president's desk. He says there that uh, among the among the many cases being made for the national health insurance is that we will be able to mobilise the necessary resources to overcome the burden of these non-communicable diseases and improve the health outcomes of all our people, not just those who can afford to pay. Until we have overcome this, we have to pay it safe. Interesting. Which non, so it's a bit of a mix of concepts. I wonder if that's not a mistake. He's talking about non-communicable diseases. Uh, maybe it, I read it incorrectly. No. Among the many cases being made for the national health insurance is that we will be able to mobilize the necessary resources to overcome the burden of these non-communicable Yeah, That's what it says. Okay, I think it's probably just some speechwriter who was tired last night. Uh, let's give them credit for that. I think he's trying to say that we need to overcome um, Commun- communicable diseases. And who can disagree with that? But, I mean, amongst the, the communicable diseases in South Africa, let's just put all this in context. Okay, we're sitting on two, just shy of 3,000 coronavirus deaths. Maybe we get to 10. Okay. Every single year, HIV, how many? You know, um, it's tens of thousands. We, we, 68,000 is the number I'm reading off my information here. And I think that that's probably, yeah, that's probably about right on average. Cardiovascular disease, 40,000, you know. Um, so in, in, in terms of communicable diseases, tuberculosis is a much bigger killer. We should focus on that. And what are we going to do about diarrhea? That's a much more significant killer, I'd say. By the end of this year, you will probably be looking at diarrheal diseases having killed maybe three times as many people as coronavirus. And that happens every year. It will probably happen more and more, you know. So there are a lot of social problems to focus on in this country. Um, We're going about it the wrong way with lockdown, that's for sure. Nick Hudson is uh, with Panda, a... Uh, as, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, he's an actuary. He's been doing the numbers. He's sticking to his guns, uh, despite the fact that uh, many have criticized uh, uh, Panda and, and you personally, Nick. But uh, the numbers that, that you are projecting are certainly not out of the ballpark at the moment. When do you yeah. think the death will peak in the country? Can you give us a, a thought on that? Yeah. I don't I don't need to try and watch a, gotcha you or anything like that, but no, just a no. thought. Yeah, well, I'm very happy to say that it'll be closer to today than where, where the NICD is projecting, that's for sure. And so, we, uh, you know, we think quite soon. Um, we, you know, it, it, we'd be very surprised if we see this, this month go out without a national peak. I mean, the Western Cape peak is behind us. And just one thing to observe there is it very often happens that a national peak, peak follows the peak in the first region quite closely. You saw that with the United States. You know, we're... If we if we show it wrong, we change our minds. We will do that. Okay. If if somebody brings me information, brings somebody in my team information today that says, look, you're not considering X, Y, and Z, we'll change our minds. That's all we're asking these modeling teams to do. You know, there's the one the one crucial thing that that's been missed here. All their models forecast massive resurgence of deaths in countries that that lift lockdown. We now have. Dozens of countries that have lifted lockdown without resurgences. When that happens, a scientist should say, okay, my hypothesis is wrong. I'm changing my model. I'm changing my mind. And there's no shame in that. The shame is in persisting with a model that's perceived, that's been proven to be wrong. And that's what all these guys are doing. And it's, it's mind boggling. Thanks very much.
Uh, Nick, look forward to the next time that we can uh, have this conversation. There, there were a few questions, but I, I, you, you answered them all as we went along, and uh, much appreciate, again, uh, your inputs uh, today. Always on. a pleasure, Alec. Always a pleasure. Well, we're going to close off the show today with Sean Emery. Sean is, uh, is one of the driving forces behind the Kisby Fund. Now, Sean, there's been a, quite a lot of uh, coverage of Kisby. Certainly, we had a webinar uh, last week. In fact, it'd be nice to see, um, uh, no, you, you aren't upside down, which is good, because we now have a <laughs> test for, we call it the Mark Barnes test. Uh, to make sure that our, our panelists who come on to uh, Rational Radio or any of our other webinars don't have them, their, their iPads upside down. But it, 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 uh, Mark is an original. What's he like to work with? Mark, says, Mark sets trends wherever he goes, right? He's often a first for everything, as you can now see. So, and, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad you guys experienced that. It's great to work with. He knows exactly what he wants. And it's very difficult to waver him off that path, which is, which is, which is good to work with. So just for those who didn't, who weren't in our webinar last week, last Thursday, in a nutshell, what is the KSB SME Fund? Yeah, when we met with you, we spoke, I mean, there's been a lot of discussions around SME funds and this need to lend to SMEs during this. And that was, which is really astounding to listen to Nick before, you, before me, where he said that there's a, a small business wall approaching. I think everybody understands that we're in a climate where it's going to be very difficult for our small businesses in South Africa. And I think any, everybody who's reasonable and rational at the moment is saying, well, we need to structure funds differently to support the growth that South Africa needs. And Kisby is an initiative alongside lots of others that have been announced. I mean, there's a new one announced today from a Morgan Stan, I mean, you know, effectively a, a new fund that's coming out it's called, you know, from capital investment partners from another five billion rand. I mean, there's one going to be one pretty regularly. But what it's indicating is that there needs to be an alternative source for funding for small, medium-sized enterprises over the next five years. Otherwise, our country just won't grow where it has to grow. And we aim to be one of those funds. We aim to be very different. We have a different approach to it. What's interesting is that we are going to marry private equity and banking together. I think that's very important. You've got to marry these different sources to be impactful in what we need. You can't just be like we were for the last 10 years. You also apply technology. I think for me, that was the differentiator. So if I could talk about, you know, why I think what we do is different, this is a question for you, is that we have to scale capital. So our whole difference comes from, the ability to, the way we're arranging our funds, so we have an impact capital and senior debt. We're using technology so that we can be highly efficient in how we get that debt spread. And then I want to use the technology to make sure we can crowd in other capital alongside of us. Lots of, lots of these players in this market tend to think that it's a competition. But we've built platforms which allow us, there's obviously 4AX debt services, is that we can originate loans and analyze them with, with huge amounts of efficiency and accuracy and autonomy with the technology platforms, apply an investment committee approach to it, so almost one-on-one. We can make a decision, which is this is something we need to fund. We think we can fund it. We fund it. And then we make it open that other people may choose to lend alongside of us. And this means in that way, our capital, or the little capital we got from the impact investor, is, you know, scaled by the senior debt and scaled by all the people we can bring alongside of us into this and say, look, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're prepared to give this person 100% of the money they need, but would you like to give them 5% or 10% alongside of us? And we just stand back a little bit and we, we try and scale and grow the capital. I think this is what we've always spoken about, Alec, is that if we can use these technologies and use these platforms, we can create the ability to really scale the lending capacity to these markets. But there has to be an initiator. And that's perhaps what I didn't have in the past when we did these things, just marketplace. It didn't have the initiator of these things, the market maker, as you might call it. How, how have you been received? We have two different kinds of, 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 you know, two different approaches. The first is when you go and talk to capital, they say, well, this is going to be a tough segment. SMEs in the next five years, how are you not going to lose the money? Because we all think there's going to be a collapse of the market. 
On the other hand, we get people who are saying this is a great opportunity and we should be making investments now because the time to invest is where others are running away and there's a great return to be made. So you've got this fear and greed and these two opportunities that we, where we see when we talk. Our job is to try and balance those two together. So we, we can get the people who are, are the greed and try and get them to tone down the returns they might want from our fund. And the ones that are fearful, we have to say, look, we know what we're doing because we're going to have this private equity approach and this banking approach and be, be, we not have to have the time frames which cause stress on companies. We're also going to have support services through SME support and some assistance and we're going to be able to carry these guys through and marry those two together to get a rate which is fair. It's quite easy to now go out into this market, go to private equity clients as all these funds are doing and say, look, there's going to be distress. Give me some money. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to buy cheap assets as cheap as I can because there's stress and you're going to make a killing. You don't want that kind of money in a fund of our nature. So not a vulture. No, we're not. And I can see there's vulture funds all around us now that are coming up. I mean, there's a statement in Bloomberg today which says that because of the company's pandemic, there's going to be great opportunities to acquire businesses which are under significant pressure. High-quality businesses are unduly punished and the virus will mean that we can take mark. That's a vulture attitude. We will not have that. Therefore, we don't want people to fund us who have that attitude. And that's what's different, Alec. When you go and talk in this market to raise money for a fund, it's very hard. You get the development capital, you get the pension fund capital, and then you get this, this corporate capital, which is so used to spinning in that upper echelon of chasing the 20%, 25% returns from the stock market. And you've got to say, guys, We've got to take a little bit of that and we've got to put it into our own SME economy and our own economy that we can actually grow these engines of employment. Otherwise, we're all going to be having these conversations about how many people are dying of diseases. You know, let's try and put something and we can protect the returns by being so much better at what we used to be able to do and schedule things together. That's what we really hope to achieve. We've been trying to do it for 10 years. We hope we can get better at it. So back to the question that I asked earlier, how have you been received? How, uh, not just the fee, uh, greed and fear, but have you found sufficient ears that are actually hearing you when you say this is this is much bigger? It's much bigger than making uh, a quick killing. Yes, we've definitely been well received. I think it's been it's been very interesting that there is an open mindedness now that something has to be different, and I think it's been a very you've been talking a lot this first. The podcast before mine was quite critical of government's response to things, but we have found in the conversations with our own government-based or let's call them development agencies clearly understand that there's an urgency. I mean, I think we saw it in the way that National Treasury responded with their 200 billion support to the banks and they're stepping in where they can. I mean, we're obviously limited in our economy about where we can step in, right, given the debt situations we're in and what can actually participate. But to provide, so that process of Knowing that your role as government is actually to be an in- impact, to be an instigator, to be a, a catalyst, is now getting more and more understood that they can actually use capital markets better. I think Mark has been exceptionally good at talking around that logic to people, that effectively to be catalytic is your responsibility. It's not actually something you're doing for the help of the fund. You're catalytic because you have to be like that. Less people that are employed you know, means you've got you haven't got liabilities, not assets. So to create your assets as a, as a country, you have to invest in it, and that's been very well received. On the that's other so side in, of it, sorry. because that's yeah. a that, that that's aligned with the entrepreneurial development state, if you like. If you if you read um, Mariana Mazzucato, who's kind of the high priestess now of economic policy in South Africa, uh, she's all about this this uh, the state invests heavily to provide the the structure, the foundation, but then clever entrepreneurs can come along and make gazillions out of it without giving a heck of a lot back. And she uses examples like Apple, uh, Microsoft, Google, and so on. Whereas, uh, so her thesis is the state should actually have some kind of a an ability to keep reinvesting because it also uh, participates in part of the return, which I think gets to what you said before. You need to leverage it. You need to be a catalyst. You need to need to almost use state capital as well, much more sensibly. Well, technically, state capital, I mean, if I have to be rude to some degree, some of the state capital that is in these impact agencies has been exceptionally lazy. It's been, it just buys into existing projects. It's 
it funds senior debt. It doesn't do any innovation of itself. I mean, if you had taken the 200 billion guarantee national treasury debt, just give 1 billion to a fund and say, then can you scale it to 5 billion? Now, 200 could have been a trillion if you had spread it out. But the banks are never going to try and scale and leverage. The banks will take that 200, they'll bring it in and they'll protect the loans they've got. They'll lend to people who are the existing clients who maybe got into trouble and they've got a guarantee. So they protect the deposit takers, which is good. You have to protect deposit takers and protect the banks. But, you know, in that context, it's around them. And the benefit of it is also true because the way we plan to structure our fund is that the development capital partner will own the return and be able to participate in the return of some of those SMEs that are hyper-successful. And that hyper-success will breed more money for reinvestment into the bottom entity. So in Silicon Valley, for example, why is there so much innovation? Because the guys that made a lot of money reinvested the money. and They made a lot of money and they reinvested. You've got these funds created like Sequoia, created by people who've made a lot, and then they continue to reinvest in the cycle. So if that capital can belong to the state, effectively the state. I mean, in these development agencies, and they are they are the ones that are having the five or ten percent equity portions that is a bit of a carry in some of this funding over time, and that suddenly becomes exponential. They can reinvest that and then still scale it. So this approach, where I've been interesting for me to see, and Mark uses the analogy well. Government, I suppose, in a way, used to perhaps from a bank point of view, walk past a field and see a bull and a cow together. And see, well, okay, that's, that's meat, you know, for this meat. Whereas now we're going past them and when they're looking at this, the bull in a cow and they're saying, actually, that's a herd. If I just give it time, water, feed it, I can create this exponential with my money. And that's a, that's a very interesting approach in the mindset now to not just see things as what is for one budget to the next, but to see things as a 20 year cycle. David Shapiro, it's been a fascinating conversation with Sean. I'm not sure if, uh, if you'd like to, Pop a final question. I, 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 th- I think the only question that worries me is, is, is a concern, and I think that Nick brought this up in order to get what Sean is moving towards. And, uh, you know, it's wonderful to know the capital is there. You need the, you need the confidence in the economy. You need confidence yeah. to actually draw that out. And my biggest concern, and, you know, Nick brought it out saying we need to liberalize the economy. In other words, we have to take all the impediments and hindrances out, and only then will we get to a point where, you know, Sean's fund can actually prosper and he can start to 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 get the herds rather than the meat. You know, we need and, – and to me, that still remains uh, one of the biggest obstacles that we have to get through. And, you know, I wish Sean good luck and and, you know, anything we can do to get there and the help that I wish government would come along and play their part as well in understanding what we need to, to grow the economy and to get the SMEs going. Well, you're 100% right, David. I mean, I don't have any comments on that. I mean, you, you hit it like the nail on the head. It's exactly correct. Sean Emery, thank you for your contribution today. Uh, it's been good seeing you again, and uh, Sean will be a little bit of a, a, a regular feature here. We're going to be talking to him pretty much uh, on a weekly basis to try and find out uh, how they're doing and, and whether they're getting the support that uh, surely David and I believe that they do deserve. Uh, Dad, just to, to close off from your side, um, the, these markets you say are going crazy, uh, but it isn't... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is not panicking like they're panicking over the, the coronavirus deaths. They're panicking in the right direction. I found Nick very, very, very fascinating. I think that, and and why I was saying that as he was talking, you know, headlines were coming across saying deaths five hundred and thirty-four thousand. You know, uh, coronavirus reaches eleven point four million, and he's telling us speak. And the question that I wanted to ask is why is it peaking? You know, why? Do pandemics peak? You know, why, how does he read it that way at a time when we're still very nervous about going out there? And, and also the other question was, uh, which I found fascinating as well is his, you know, how do we measure poverty? How do we measure the deaths that lockdown has caused? I wish there was some way in which we could weigh the two together, you know, and see what the right course, course of action is, you know, what path do we follow? These are worrying things. No, I loved what Professor Michael Levitt. Remember, uh, he's mm. the yep. South African-born Nobel Science Prize winner. 
or prize winner. We've obviously got uh, got Bishop Tutu, um, who won the Peace Prize <laughs> and the FW declared. But uh, the, the, on the scientific side, he's the, mm. the only one who's still alive. And he reckons the number to look at is excess deaths. And South Africa's mm. excess deaths are now starting to come through. In other words, we have what Nick was saying, uh, TB and road accidents, Dave. 14,000 people a year die on road accidents mm. the last time I looked at the numbers. Uh, and you get many other causes of deaths. Um, but how much is the excess being caused by COVID-19? Mm. And certainly the numbers I'm seeing is that that's now starting to break above the normal uh, rate of death. So there's, it, it's such a complex and such a fascinating area. And I guess the, the big question I keep coming back to or the big consequence I keep coming back to is we have to keep an open mind. Uh, mm. And, and uh, people like Nick on the one hand are looking at the data and they, they're coming to certain conclusions. Professor Michael Levitt says, really, just look at the excess deaths and then you'll get a real feeling for what this virus is doing to us. And there are other people, the epidemiologists like Dr. Joe Barnes, who um, uh, we've interviewed previously from Stellenbosch University, and then uh, one of our greats, uh, Gail Linda Becker, the professor from UCT, who we spoke to last week, uh, who, who say, just this thing is serious. Be careful. You know, just stay indoors if you can. Try not to add to the burden that the the healthcare workers, and I guess that's what it's about. Wear a mask so that you don't infect other people and uh, try not to get it yourself so you don't put more pressure on the system because the healthcare workers, they're flat out. Uh, here in Gauteng, now, I don't know, um, the, 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 the hospitals are still managing pretty well, but there are parts of the country, uh, Eastern Cape in particular, uh, probably KZN as things uh, escalate there, which are going to have to turn people away, and that's, that's where you start getting problems. Mm. Yeah, look, I think it's all valid. You know, you say keep an open mind. I just don't brush this thing aside. But, but I think the positive thing is that markets are, are beginning to look ahead and seeing an end to, to all of this. Uh, also governments are doing whatever they can in terms of pushing money into the system. And it's nice to hear that, Sean, that there are people out there who are raising money in an effort to, to kind of support and fund, you know, businesses, uh, in this very, very difficult time. And, and they're not trying to make killings. They're just trying to make sure that, the, you know, the structure of this economy, that the institutions remain. They are, David. Well, as always, very good to have had you on the program today. I uh, look forward to being back next week for our weekly noontime Rational Radio webinar. David Shapiro and myself, Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.